0: Hmm. Is ichor worth as much as blood? Can you write off a cursed goblet? Does an eight like a dog count as a child if you feed it breast milk? Hmm. That's right. It's tax season once again. But this spring, every donation to the Wrong Station Patreon qualifies you for a $7,000 tax credit, redeemable once Wrong Station takes over your country's government. Which is soon. Click the link in the description below to discover behind-the-scenes content, bonus episodes, art, book clubs, and more Wrong Station goodies. And remember to file. A wonder-working power in the precious Incredible, as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. <laughs> you may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. In a city like this, there are a lot more overlooked enclaves than you'd ever imagine. Five decades of multicultural policy and five centuries of imperial policy bring waves of people to a city like this from places you couldn't dream of. The myth, of course, is that they're accepted, that everyone who comes to this country is welcomed and integrated. The reality is nothing like that. This city likes to boast that half its population was born outside this country, What that means in practice, though, is that half the population is stuffed into ghettos of varying size and poverty. Worse, people aren't even allowed to keep their ghettos. Real estate speculation drives people like me into the old immigrant neighborhoods. Prices go up around us, businesses change, and the people who live there are forced into slums or far suburbs, losing their last connection to the communities they built. Maybe this is just the mechanism that integrates people in the long run. If so, it's a heartless mechanism. It kills the homes of people who've already lost theirs once. All this is to say, the neighborhood I used to live in no longer exists. It was called Little Karagia, and the Karagis had been living there since their country was racked by an ethnic cleansing in the 70s. It was a bleak, isolated corner of the city, located between the pig-killing factories in the West End and a part of the city that was all auto repair shops. When the wind swept one way, it stank of burnt rubber. When it went the other way, blood, feces, and terror. Little Karagia made Little Malta look like downtown. The nearest bus route was a twenty-minute walk. Tracks passed through the neighborhood, but no trains stopped there. I lived in the third-floor garret of a decaying red-brick Victorian, abandoned by the middle class a century before. My landlord was named Gavul. He belonged to an ethnic group called the True Karagi and kept a framed picture of General Karoche, that genocidal 70s dictator, in the front hall. Gavol and I didn't like each other, but we had an understanding. I couldn't afford to live anywhere else, and he didn't want a tenant who brought Karagi Drama into the building. He called me Ingleso, or English boy, even though I'm third-generation Greek-Italian. I sometimes think that my own great-grandfathers might have been men like Gavol, and it's a thought I dislike. Gavul spent his time on Karagi Facebook, or on news sites where words like homosexual and traitor leaped out from blocks of glagolitic text. He was constantly shouting at his housekeeper, a kind, decent woman named Morella. Morella was what they called a foreigner Karagi, and hers was one of the ethnic groups Karosh tried to wipe out. I don't know why she put up with Gavul. I think maybe they had shared some kind of history once before his politics came between them. I didn't like little Karagia, but if it sounds like I'm complaining, I promise, I'm not. The apartment had the same problems as other places I've lived before or since, but Gavul was better about repairs than most landlords I've had. He claimed to have been an engineer in the old country. I don't know if I believe that, but he had a sharp mind that could have done a lot of good if the world had given him a chance to be someone else. As it was, well... But altogether, my time in Little Karagi was better than it was for most people living there. By the statistics, it was an unsafe neighborhood, but as an outsider, an English, that never affected me. I often returned home late, and though a gang of young, unemployed Karagi men liked to hang out at the bottom of my street after dark, they never gave me any trouble. In two years there, I saw a lot of fights, and a lot of people drowsing in alleys with a needle in their arm. But honestly... I always felt safe. I was an outsider, protected. There was an unspoken thing. I wasn't part of their world, and to involve me was to court the involvement from the outside world. After living there a few months, I realized the unspoken thing went both ways. I would Ubered home late one night, and the driver had been uncomfortable about driving through that part of town. He kept saying, I didn't even know this part of town existed. We took left turn after left turn after left turn up Duke Schleschlau Street, down Farcombe Avenue, past St. Gazimir's Catholic School. Yep, this is the way, I kept saying. I was a bit drunk, so I poured a glass of water and put a frozen pizza in the oven. It was after 3 a.m., and shouts were echoing up and down the street. I went to the window and glanced through my curtains. People kept their curtains drawn in Little Karagia. Just down the street, the orange glow of an old streetlight cast writhing shadows through a group of struggling figures. It was a fight. That gang of young men had cornered someone, or had been cornered by another group. I craned my neck, trying to catch a better view, and then there was a flash of metal, a scream, and someone went down like they weren't getting up again. My hands were suddenly unreliable, and it took me a couple of tries to dial the police. Some people I'm friends with say you shouldn't ever call the police, that they only make situations worse. I don't know how I feel about that. At that moment, I just did what I could think to do. I've witnessed a stabbing, I said. I gave the nearest intersection. The woman on the other end of the line told me to remain indoors. I stayed by the window, waiting for the police to show up. They never did. Little Karagia wanted nothing to do with the state and it seemed the state wanted even less to do with Little Karagia. In my time there, I never saw a single cop car or ambulance. Fire engines only ever showed up after buildings had burned themselves out. There was one public school in the area, and it was closed. Too expensive for the school board to keep open. The property too worthless to sell off. Little Karagia lived up to its name. It was an island of statelessness, floating in one of the biggest cities in North America. A week and a half after the stabbing, a bored-sounding detective took my statement over the phone. At the end of the call, he sighed, saying, Well, tensions are high, but can you blame them with what's going on in their country? Before I could ask what that meant, or ask if this wasn't supposed to be their country, he hung up. I did some googling after that. What's going on in their country seemed to be a new president from one of the so-called foreign ethnic groups who had run on a liberal anti-corruption platform. I wasn't sure why my city's police had an opinion on Karagi politics unless as part of a general loyalty to thug rule, but this all brings me to the parade. Sometime between October and November is the Karagian national holiday. The date shifts because Karagia uses the Julian calendar, but it commemorates the Battle of Shavash, Shavash being the Karagian word for battle. Shavash was a historic victory against, I think, either the Habsburgs or the Ottomans, though I've heard versions of the story where the villains were Russians, Mongols, or even the French or the Portuguese. Once, a woman in one of the depineurs down the street, there were two, one foreign-owned and one true Karagi, shook her finger at me and said, English, English, Shavash, English, which I think means she thought the English were the enemy in that battle. I suspect that whoever gets power in Karagia just changes the history for their own convenience. Either way, from what I can tell, for true Karagis, the battle became symbolic of their own ethnic struggles, their manifest destiny. Karash used it to sell true Karagi on the concept of genocide. The holiday was banned in Karagia after his overthrow, and then reinstated by Revenkists, and then banned again, and reinstated, and so on, and so on. And with each new purge and counter-purge, the purged fled here to begin again, and again, and again. Shivash Day came on a cold October morning, the year that I lived there. I woke up freezing. Gavul didn't turn on the heat until temperatures broke zero, and my garret was damp and drafty. Outside, music was playing, and I recognized the tom flute, a sort of traditional Karagi bagpipe. The tom flute is... an acquired taste. Stumbling to the window, I saw people already lining the grey streets, dressed in drab traditional attire or the red and grey of the Karagian flag. Women held children to their hips, men held them up on their shoulders. Coffee and donuts from the low-grade local chain were passed up and down, The red paper cups, unexpected, incorrect against the backdrop of folk instruments and peasant garb. Something that struck me, even from the window, was that nobody looked happy. Maybe a couple of the children seemed pleased, swinging red and grey flags above their father's heads. But nobody else smiled, or laughed, or clapped their hands. They all just stood, waiting without anticipation. Hmm. Is ichor worth as much as blood? Can you write off a cursed goblet? Does an eight like a dog count as a child if you feed it breast milk? Hmm. That's right. It's tax season once again. But this spring, every donation to the Wrong Station Patreon qualifies you for a $7,000 tax credit, redeemable once Wrong Station takes over your country's government. Which is soon. Click the link in the description below to discover behind the scenes content, bonus episodes, art, book clubs, and more wrong station goodies. And remember to file. I had to run some errands, though I wasn't sure if any local shops would be open on Shivash Day. I thought about showering and decided not to. It was the kind of grey, grim morning that didn't deserve it. I threw on dirty clothes and slouched downstairs. The door to Cavol's apartment was open. Though when I stuck my head around the frame, I saw that he was out, and only Morella was there. I called out to say hello, and she spun around, steadying herself against the TV console with a hand on her heart. "'Oh,' she said, catching her breath. "'It's you. You scare. You scare.'" One of the things I respected about Morella was how she was always put together, no matter what. She took a quiet pride in her appearance that I found dignified, despite or because of how life had heaped indignities on her. But now a dark shadow was carved through the makeup on each cheek. She had been crying. I felt suddenly embarrassed to have intruded. I didn't think Morella would have liked a stranger to see her cry. Oh, I said, I'm sorry, I was just heading out. It's nothing, she said, wiping her cheeks with the heel of one hand and pretending to get back to dusting. Happy Shivash Day, I said. "'Shavash, ha!' she said, with a bitter twist to her mouth. She muttered something in Karagi and then said, "'You go home for today, English? Leave Karah? Go downtown?' "'Oh,' I said. "'No, no, I was just going to run some errands around here.' "'You listen, Morella,' she said. "'Go downtown. It's no good today for English. Go downtown.' "'All right, yeah, if you say so,' I said." I had no intention of going downtown. It was a schlep to get there, and something in the air that day had me feeling lazy and listless. I could tell she wanted to be alone, so I bid her farewell and ducked down the hall. It occurs to me now that I'm not actually sure whether Morella was a foreign or Karagi. Gavul called her that as an insult, but if she really was, I'm not sure why she would have anything to do with him, or vice versa. Probably it's all more complicated than I realize— Maybe some unexpected kindness or bond united them, overriding petty ethnos. Or maybe she was true Karagi, but with liberal sympathies. Or maybe the divide between the groups was shifting and meaningless, and one could be both foreign and true Karagi. Maybe all or some combination of these things or other things were true. But one thing is certain. She was right that I should have gone downtown that afternoon. The Shavash parade was well underway by the time I slithered down my building's front stoop. The crowds had thickened on either side of the street, and more red and gray flags whipped back and forth, though no more smiles had broken through, and the gray clouds were lowering overhead. A group of children were just passing by with a banner that announced Patriotic Youth from St. Casimir’s Catholic School. In their midst walked one of their teachers, shackled and in red-smeared robes. A placard around his neck read, St. Gazimir the Martyr, and the two halves of a cavalry saber protruded from his front and back. On either side walked his anachronistic oppressors, a trio of other teachers dressed as a Cossack, a Centaurian, and a Landsknecht. I turned aside and waded through the crowd toward the bottom of the street. Nobody else was trying to get anywhere, and it was slow going to shuffle my way through a sea of red and gray and getting cold looks from the people I passed, both for daring not to stand and watch the parade, and wearing a jean jacket and black pants, on this day for red and grey. At the bottom of the street, the true Karagi Depanure was closed. Across the street, the foreign-owned dep was also closed, and a steel shutter had been rolled down over the storefront. Some true karagi were kicking at it, and someone had tagged it with the words, Lugazitia Karosh, long live Karosh. The roll of a snare drum drew my attention. I looked up, and behind the Karagi metal and traditional dancers marched the Karagi war veterans, though whether these were Karagi who had fought in the Canadian forces, or the Karagi army, or both, was unclear to me. They were all grey-faced men in their sixties, and in terrible shape, shambling rather than marching to the inconsistent drumbeat. There was something awful about them, in their mismatched berets and fatigues. If these were veterans of the Caraga military, they were men who had done terrible things and now celebrated the memory. I had this one co-worker once, at a factory job I used to work, a Portuguese veteran of the colonial wars in Angola. The only thing I ever heard him say about it was a chilling nonsense phrase. We left a lot of babies in the forest. It could have meant a number of things, all of them, unthinkable. Sometimes he used the word... Babies, to refer to young female co-workers. This man had hated the army. After he left, he'd worn a beard every single day of his life because the army made you shave. He was haunted. He marched in no parades. But these men had freshly shaven jaws and jowls and proud gray mustaches. These killers felt no remorse for the things they'd done. The phrase leapt unbidden to my mind as they shuffled past. We left a lot of babies in the forest. We left a lot of babies in the forest. Sickened, I was trying to move along when something else caught my attention. A military truck rolled past in the middle of the Veterans March, and then came a red and grey painted float, topped by a huge portrait of General Kuroche. This offended me violently, and offense turned to revulsion as I saw how many people in the crowd saluted it, a Roman-style salute that called to mind the Sig but even that was driven almost immediately from my mind. Behind the great A-frame portrait, a post had been mounted in the center of the float, and a man tied to it, gagged and blindfolded. A wooden sign hung around his neck, glagolitic text looping against the grain. Below that sign hung another with the English translation. Foreigner, it said. Homosexual. Witch. Imagine wading into a lake. The water gets steadily colder, but your senses aren't fine-grained enough to keep track of the temperature, and so you get this phenomenon where the water feels the same for several long, slow steps, and then comes the sudden shock as your body realizes all at once how cold the water has become. I realized in that moment just how cold the water had become. What's going on? I said, out loud. My own voice seemed to come from a distance. "'What is this?' I looked around, and I was surrounded by people in red and grey, and nobody would meet my eyes, not because they were ashamed, but because I might as well not have been there. "'What's going on?' I said again as the crowd began to move around me, following that final float. "'This is fake, right? This is some sort of symbolic thing.' But nobody answered. The crowd pushed, and I had to go along with it or be shoved aside and trampled. At the top of the street there was a little square in front of the old Catholic church and the crowd filed in as the float pulled up to the parish steps. The Karagi veterans formed a perimeter, saluting the crowd with that extended downward palm. Drums rolled, and the tom flute reached a pitch as a man jumped up onto the float. I recognized him. It was Gavol. Gavol raised both his hands. The music fell silent, and he began to shout in Karagi. His cadence built into the rising cry, Varat Karagi! Varad Karagi, Varad Karagi, echoed the crowd. Lugazitja Karosh, he shouted. Karosh, Karosh, shouted the crowd. And as the masses surged forward, Gavol hopped down from the float, and the music struck up again. I was almost crushed as the crowd pressed forward, everyone rooting in their pockets. A moment later, the first stone flew. It struck the bound man across his face, drawing blood. I swore and pulled out my phone. More rocks flew, and as I tried to dial 911, the phone was slapped from my hands and crunched under someone's boot. Stupid English, somebody spat in my face, and I was shoved as more stones flew, thudding into the man's chest and joints and groin as he strained against the rope, screaming against the gag, his voice drowned out by the drums and tom flutes. A hand gripped my wrist and pulled me backwards. I tensed up, preparing to fight. But it was Morella, and she was staring at me with panic in her eyes and a clenched jaw. I let her pull me from the crowd, leaving my phone behind. Bright, scornful eyes glanced in my direction as I passed. There was an unspoken agreement. If I broke that agreement, if I meddled, I'd be making myself a part of their world and subject to their rules. I pulled out my phone. I'd broken the agreement. The feeling of danger was like a surgical implement that had been left behind and sewn up inside my chest. Together we burst into the apartment and Morella shoved me toward the stairs. I say go downtown, English, she screamed at me. Why you not listen? Dumbfounded, I staggered against the wall, and as she turned away from me she caught sight of that portrait of Karosh and gagged on a sob, falling back against the radiator in the hole. I didn't know what to do. I rushed upstairs to my apartment, haunted by the sound of Morella weeping through gritted teeth. From the corner of my window, I could catch a glimpse of the square. One glance was all I needed. It was over. The crowd was beginning to disperse. I sat on the edge of my bed, in that grey room, in that grey neighbourhood, and stared at the wall. I didn't come out for forty-eight hours. By then, Shavash Day was over. Everything was back to normal. Gavol was refinishing a table on the front porch, and after two days of being too tormented to sleep, the smell made me lightheaded. At the sight of me, he grunted, nodding once, and went back to work. Nothing, as far as he was concerned, had changed. I moved out two weeks later. I never contacted the police. I had no evidence a crime had even been committed, and if I did, then who was the culprit? It was everyone. Two-thirds of the neighborhood had thrown stones. The other third had hidden in their homes, just happy it wasn't them. The city, the province, the state, had all washed their hands of what happened in Little Karagia. And I, like I said, did nothing at all. Little Karagia doesn't exist anymore. Now there's a bubble tea on that little square where I saw that man get lynched. People in yoga pants walk French bulldogs past the church of St. Gazimir which has been renovated into high-end condos. Maybe the Karagis are all integrated now, scattered across the slums and burbs, where the only crimes are ones of poverty and despair, not bloody ancestral vengeance. Maybe there's a kind of justice in that, that the neighborhood who killed that man has now been killed itself. But nothing's really changed. It's like I said, in a city like this there are more overlooked enclaves than you'd ever imagine. And somewhere out there, the cycle repeats, with new people in a new neighborhood. And there's an unspoken thing. The Wrong Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash the station. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, or wherever it is that you listen to The Wrong Station. This week's episode, National Parade, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmid. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at thewrongstation@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also follow The Wrong Station creative team on Twitter at AEW Saxton, AJV Botello, and Jacob BRDS. And until next time, thank you for listening.